the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic process. Whether we shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism will be our credo. Leading the right out of the ashes, this is The Right Take. How's it going, everybody? Ooh, does that intro get you pumped up or what? Jacob, what do you think? Tell nice, me. Nice, nice little upgrade there. Well, I like it. I like a, it a lot. A slight upgrade for you guys. Call it rebranding. Call it whatever you want to call it. With lines from some of the great Republican presidents in American history, modern American history, and towards the end there, longtime fans might recognize the voice of our friend Alex Hall from the Media Research Center. Thank you especially to Alex for doing that for us. Can we take a minute to talk about how we came to pick some of those lines, Jake? Because we determined early on we had to have Teddy Roosevelt. We had to have Calvin Coolidge. Those were the first two in that order. Initially, later on, we decided Eisenhower, the military-industrial complex line. Of course, you've got to include the military-industrial complex line. I'm a huge fan of Nixon. I know Nixon gets a really bad rap throughout history, but I, I he's one of my absolute favorite figures in American history. And those lines from his inaugural address, just so inspirational. Light on policy specifics, of course, but very, very inspirational. And then, of course, how else could we end it but with what I think is the single greatest line that President Trump ever said, Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. So, of course, this is episode number 51. Welcome, guys. This is the first episode of February, which unfortunately is also known as Black History Month. We will be talking about a lot of stories in this particular episode. We talked last episode, we covered the two dominant stories in the media right now, which are the Russia-Ukraine crisis 
and of course Biden's coming affirmative action Supreme Court justice. So with those out of the way, there's not a lot else in the news right now where that's worth talking about. So we figured we kind of do a bit more scattershot here and talk about a few really small topics and just kind of dot the map here and go point, 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 point. And talk about these smaller stories that do have implications. Obviously, they're not the big stories you're going to see all over the place, like, you know, a pending war or another Supreme Court justice, but they are definitely worth talking about. And the first one, I just had to bring this one up when I first saw this headline. Uh, I had I came up with this, and I think this is the perfect phrase to summarize it. Brandon goes to Washington? Question mark. Um, so we know, of course, one of the most grassroots conservative movements in recent times has been the school board protest movement which started i think in about january of 2021 like right after biden seized power and of course it's well we all know what it is it's parents protesting at school board meetings about primarily critical race theory you know the anti-white you know conspiracy theory about all white people are racist and america as a nation founded by white people is inherently racist and also the transgender bathroom stuff and nowhere has this been more prominent than north virginia the counties of virginia that are right across the river from dc they're basically the dc suburbs all the federal bureaucrats and lobbyists and whatnot who don't want to actually live in dc especially these days with the lockdown measures want to live across the river in beautiful arlington and all those other areas arlington uh alexandria and whatnot loudon county fairfax county and others which to be fair i support dc statehood as long as they get to join <laughs> they get yeah take north virginia take loudon and fairfax and arlington take uh, a little bit of maryland yeah like swallow it all up because again you you cut north virginia out of the equation virginia is a deep red state which i would definitely would not be against and maryland we talked about this before Jacob. maryland would probably be like a swing state at that it, point it would it would be you take out prince george's county take out uh, montgomery county especially then it does uh, it becomes purple it definitely becomes a uh, light shade of purple yeah the setbacks of the course that we would have in the senate and the house i think you could argue would be way balanced out by the electoral advantage we would definitely gain at that point so i i, I can see the argument for that so going back back on topic here so the anti-school board movement arguably started with this first of, of we all know the viral videos of parents ranting at school board meetings that we've seen all over the place. Uh, this was arguably the first. This is a fellow by the name of Brandon Michon. This is from January 2021 at the Loudoun County School Board meeting. You guys may remember once you hear the punchlines of this video, you'll, you'll probably remember this. You should all be fired from your day jobs because if your employers knew that you were more inefficient than the, than the DMV, you would be replaced in a heartbeat. I literally just finished a conference call because I'm having to multitask to be here to, to address you guys. You're a bunch of cowards hiding behind our children as an excuse for keeping schools closed. You think you're some sort of martyrs because of the decisions you're making when the statistics do not lie that the vast majority of the population is not at risk from this virus. The garbage workers who pick up my freaking trash risk their lives every day more than anyone in this school system figure it out or get off the podium because you know what there are people like me and a line of other people out there who will gladly take your seat and figure it out that's got to be my favorite and like three different liners in that one well, see, this was in January of last year. At this yes. point, they had not yet started the push for critical race theory. It was actually in February. They had a freedom of uh, information request from Loudoun County, and they discovered that it was really in February, especially March, that the school board and the teachers who support CRT were pushing for it to be subtly implemented. So at this point, and it was really bad timing because the thing is, parents were already extremely mad. So going back to the fall of 2020, that their kids were not in school 
that the teachers were taking vacations, that everything was via Zoom, which works sometimes, doesn't work other times, and that parents were having to stay home and babysit their kids and have to homeschool their kids, do the teacher's jobs for them. And so parents were already upset. They picked a very inopportune time to try to ram critical race theory down everyone's throats because the parents were already activated because of the school closures. And also they were starting to get even here. They were starting to get annoyed at the persistent mask wearing. Exactly. Yeah. And again, that that video, what I love, two different great punchlines there between figure it out and raise the freaking bar. You could argue this guy, this guy in inadvertently ended up setting the freaking bar with this rant so i i say this guy arguably started that movement he was the first to go viral he appeared on tucker carlson sometime after that and now this fellow mr brandon michonne has announced that he is going to run for congress he's going to be running for the 10th congressional district of virginia which is currently represented by incumbent democrat jennifer wexton Now, I actually have some mixed feelings about this particular announcement. Uh, For one, he's running already against eight other Republicans. It's a very crowded primary. So with his recognition, certainly the viral attention he got, he could probably win the nomination just because it's so crowded. But the seat itself is not the most conducive. It did improve slightly for Republicans' chances with the new map in Virginia, the new congressional map, which has been approved and confirmed and is finalized. It went from D plus 12 to D plus 8. So it is actually technically the second least blue of the blue districts of Virginia, only behind the seventh district, which is that's Abigail Spanberger's district, which is only a D plus two voter registration index. So that one could probably flip. Uh, But this is more northeastern Virginia. This is, again, it includes Loudoun County. So it's not conducive to a win, I don't think. I mean, you never know. Virginia did technically flip by 15 points between the 2020 election and the 2021 election. So who knows? But I see that and I can't help but feel a little bit like, I, I, I like this guy. Obviously, I like his passion. I like his energy. But I really think he sh- he would have been better off running for school board, don't you think? I mean, this could – running for Congress in a seat that's not likely to win, could it be a vanity run or do we think maybe he has a chance here? Um, I mean he might have a chance. He goes from D12 to D plus 8 and this year in 2022. I mean I, I think – it's pretty clear now that unless Republicans just really botch it, they're going to win the House. It's pretty much guaranteed. Yeah. So and he lives – I mean running for school board, I, I haven't looked into those races. There may have already be several other competent people who are challenging the school, the current school board members. Exactly. Plus, yeah. I mean I don't know what his – I don't know what he does for a living. I don't know what his expertise is. He may not be a good fit for the school board. Potentially, yeah. He does have a website, of course, a, uh, a website for his congressional run. It's brandonforcongress.com. Uh, where, sure enough, on the website he <laughs> oh, does have – by the way, that's another thing. You couldn't say we're – you know, it wouldn't – the name Brandon wouldn't really work as well going for school board as it does for sending Brandon to exactly. Congress. Exactly. Sending Brandon to Washington. Because sh- sure enough, on his website, he has uh, hashtag raise the bar, referencing his viral rant. And sure enough, at the very top of the website, it says let's – go brandon michonne for congress because nice, nice. so, uh, keep in mind this happened before the let's go brandon thing became a meme because that was i think what october when that nascar incident happened mm-hmm, that yeah. sparked it. so yeah so this was before that so he obviously he has said yeah i totally welcome let's go brandon being used for my campaign so it does fit it fits with all the memes and you know the the jokes that can be made so i i mean i support him i absolutely would love to see him win if for no other reason than again i support the idea of citizen politicians coming back you know people who have never run for office before regular people parents whatnot this is why i support jd vance for example over in the ohio senate race we need more non-politicians running for office now than ever before and this guy is a perfect example so i do support him and i hope he wins uh and again d plus eight after a 15 point swing for virginia over the course of one year maybe who knows who knows we will see what happens uh best of luck to you mr brandon michonne 
And uh, yeah, let's, uh, unironically, the better version, let's go, Brandon. Um, (laughs) So speaking of races for Congress, another one we've got to talk about. So, and this kind of ties back to what I said, uh, I referenced redistricting with Virginia. Redistricting has so far been really good for Republicans. And one prime example is Tennessee. And yes, Republicans absolutely are gerrymandering. And that is a good thing. All cards, all bets are off. We need to use every single weapon in our arsenal to take on the Democrats and the left in general with as crazy as they're getting. So I support gerrymandering. And Tennessee is a beautiful example. The city of Nashville is one of the only two major hubs in the state of Tennessee, obviously, the other being Memphis down in the southwest corner. And the previous map saw Nashville contained in a single district, District 5, which made it a D plus 17 seat. Now... With the new map that has been proposed and passed by the state legislature, I think all that's left is to be signed by the governor. So it's basically because that's how they do in Tennessee. So it's basically going to be approved. The new map will see Nashville's political power completely gutted. It will rest at the intersection of three different districts, carving it up between those three districts, which then all branch way out into rural areas. So they're all deep red seats containing portions of Nashville. So just like that. The 5th District in particular, one of the three that will contain a part of Nashville, just went from D plus 17 to R plus 15. That is fantastic news. And as a result, the incumbent Democrat there, the longtime representative, Jim Cooper, has announced that he will not run for re-election this year. He is retiring. So that's an open seat. And whoever wins this nomination is going to win that particular election. So there were a handful of Republicans already running to challenge him even before his announcement, which, again, that you could argue is more of a vanity run in the previous seat. D plus 17, there's no way they were going to win. But uh, several of them were running. Among them is a guy you may have heard of. He's made the rounds on social media. He's, I believe he is verified on social media. He's built his following online, kind of a grassroots following he's got going for himself, is a former filmmaker originally from California by the name of Robbie Starbuck, who has been running for that seat for almost a year now and was kind of seen as the front runner, I guess, due to the media attention he's garnered for himself. He's got a lot of high profile endorsements. Apparently his fundraising numbers haven't been that great, but definitely the attention he's garnered for himself online and elsewhere has made him kind of the star candidate in that race. However, last week, President Trump came out rather suddenly and and shockingly, I think, and made a preemptive endorsement for somebody else who is not even running for the seat yet. The person he endorsed to potentially run in Tennessee's fifth is a woman by the name of Morgan Ortegas. Now, who is Morgan Ortegas? Well, if you have been watching Fox News a bit lately, you will recognize her as a contributor on Fox, who is most often seen on that program outnumbered. You know, again, the one with the four women and and the one guy. She has been a Fox News contributor ever since the end of the Trump presidency, the first uh, term of the Trump administration. She previously was a State Department official who served as a spokeswoman for Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Unfortunately, despite having served in the Trump administration, it has been revealed through the, the detective work of social media, as always, social media on the right, that she her past leaves a lot to be desired when it comes to her pro-Trump MAGA America First credentials. Among other things, she had previously took a selfie with then-Vice President Joe Biden. She was a supporter of Jeb's campaign. We all remember Jeb, right, Jacob? You know, the guacamole merchant, you know, low-energy Jeb. 
She even was photographed many times wearing a Jeb t-shirt. She was a spokesman for his campaign and was vocally anti-Trump in 2016, which especially considering she was in the Jeb camp. You know, if anybody who is in the Jeb camp or the Kasich camp in 2016, especially could reasonably be considered strong candidates for not having voted for Trump at all. Like they may very well have voted for Gary Johnson. They may have voted for Evan McMuffin. They may have just not voted at all. So there's a chance she didn't vote for Trump. Yeah, there, I mean, being anti-Trump is one thing in 2015, 2016. I was mm-hmm. too, but supporting Jeb is it's, unforgivable. Exactly. Just completely exactly. unforgivable. Even if Trump wasn't in the race, why would anyone want to support Jeb? I mean, at that point, I would take a Rubio or a Cruz. Again, I was for Ben Carson and Rand Paul initially, and I think they were miles ahead well, of You're basically of signaling that you agree with the Bush administration if you support yep. his little brother. And you were prepared for another Bush v. Clinton matchup. Which is, again, that's what everyone thought 2016 was going to be. It was going to be Jeb Bush versus Hillary Clinton. Another another Clinton-Bush matchup, just like 1992. Again, just show how far American politics have come. Uh, but I digress. This last one about Morgan Ortega, this is unbelievable when I saw this. Her wedding was officiated by none other than the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> and there's gotta, a photo of her. You gotta be kidding. There is a photo of her and her husband with oh, Justice Ginsburg. Oh, wow. So, and this is even funnier. Again, this is more news that has come out about this development. You know who it was who allegedly first put the idea in President Trump's head that Morgan Ortega was going to run in the first place? You know who it was? Um, I, I don't know. the. I don't, I'm not really well versed on his inner circle. Hmm. Well, it's not someone you would want in his inner circle. It's a certain senator from South Carolina. Oh, of course. Of course. Lindsey Graham. Yeah. It's Lindsey Graham, the guy who just said the other day on TV that yeah. he would not support pardoning the January 6th prisoners. Oh, even though he's also true. lobbying hard for uh, Biden's black justice pick. Oh, of course. Like, yeah. like It's course. Not, not doing what I did and said I understand where Biden's coming from and why he did it. Basically, he's going all in and like this is the right move. It's time for, a, for an African-American female justice. But yeah, so through the initial rumor, I guess, started by Lindsey Graham, and then at some point there were discussions in the Trump inner circle that eventually culminated in him releasing another one of those statements of his that's kind of – it's the same thing you've seen over and over again. You know, she'd be great on the America First agenda, blah, blah, blah. You know, I would support her if she runs. And surprisingly, there has actually been a lot of backlash against this pre-endorsement from within the the MAGA world from within Trump's camp and his supporters online. And there have been a handful of articles, mainstream media articles covering this. Uh, Newsweek, for example, Donald Trump supporters denounce his decision not to endorse Robbie Starbuck. Politico, Trump faces MAGA revolt over endorsement. And these articles, among others, list a handful of the most prominent individuals who did speak out publicly on social media, namely on Twitter, against this endorsement, including Candace Owens, Sebastian Gorka, Congressman Madison Cawthorn, Carrie Lake, who is the front runner for the Republican nomination for governor in Arizona this year, endorsed by Trump, by the way, and town hall senior columnist Kurt Schlichter, among many, many others. Kurt Schlichter, especially. I love I love following his Twitter feed. I know, Jacob, I think we have disagreements about our opinions of Kurt Schlichter, but I, I do love I cannot that. stand Kurt Schlichter. <laughs> I think he's hilarious. I he cannot can... <laughs> stand that boomer. <laughs> We're going to have to disagree to disagree. But he especially was covering this nonstop the day after that endorsement came out. Multiple tweets saying, rightfully so, like, this is a watershed moment for, you know, the America First movement with in terms of Trump's endorsements. I He's got this completely wrong. He has a chance to reverse this but he could screw this up really badly. So among others. So what does this mean? I mean, because first off, Morgan Ortega isn't even from the district, by the way. She's from Florida. So I I don't know how on earth it came around that she might run in Tennessee of all things. Because Starbuck, apparently, he's not from Tennessee either. He's from California, but he moved to Tennessee, I think, a few years ago. So he's got more of a claim there than she does. She's more like 
a straight carpetbagger like some people who would run for office in California. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But this does raise the question of President Trump's role as kingmaker ever since leaving office. Now, Jacob, we've talked about this before, not in a while, but we talked off air about this. The, the question, of course, the big question, the question of all questions right now in terms of electoral politics, Trump in 2024, yes or no on both should he run and will he run? I think yes to both of those. Jacob, I believe, unless you've changed your mind about this recently, you think he will not run. Is that correct? I think he's waiting to see how 2022 turns out, Yeah, how his endorsements turn out, how his image in the party still remains by mm-hmm. January 2023. And I think uh, that's you'll see a decision from him probably in January, February 2023. Sure. Because, I mean, uh, of course, if we don't retake Congress, then there is no point to him running unless he's guaranteed. He's convinced 100 percent we could retake Congress in the 2024 elections when he runs again, but he doesn't want to take the gamble. He wants to be able to get stuff done and not be blocked by one or both houses of Congress, which is fair. That's understandable. He's a businessman. He's a pragmatist. He sees the writing on the wall. So, um, but with regards to that, in the interim period between 2017, or excuse me, between 2021 and between 2025, potentially, he's been making the rounds with endorsing a lot of candidates, of course. He, he's been doing that ever since he first came out of the scene in 2015. But, of the roughly 170, I think, primary endorsements he has made, uh, somewhere between that, I think it's somewhere in the range of 170, maybe as low as 150, but as high as 180, he's made a lot of primary endorsements. You can't even keep track of them anymore. He has a very solid record. Of those, only three times has his endorsed candidate ever lost in the primary. The first, of course, is Luther Strange, the Alabama Senate special election in 2017. Jacob, we all remember that. God, that feels like ancient history. Um businessman foster freeze no relation to the fast food chain fosters freeze uh, who ran for governor of wyoming in 2018 he lost to now governor mark gordon and susan wright who ran for congress in texas's sixth district in 2021 that was a special election where the previous representative ron wright her husband died allegedly of covid complications and trump endorsed her to take her late husband's seat and he had previously done that in louisiana in their fifth district where a similar case there happened where then congressman luke letlow uh died uh, allegedly of covid19 and his widow julia letlow was endorsed by trump and ultimately did win the seat so he just repeated the strategy in that election in texas but she ended up losing the election to jake elise and i think it is worth interest it's no worth noting by the way that in all three of these cases none of them lost to Liz Cheney type, Adam Kinzinger, rhino Republicans who promised to get rid of Trump. You know, it's uh, strange, of course, lost to Roy Moore, you know, and Jake Elise, by all accounts, did campaign very much on the America First agenda and, and Mark Gordon as well in Wyoming. So it's not an indication that Trump's hold on the base is weakening by any means. I mean, again, that's a very good record, but the few times his candidates have lost, they're not repudiations of him his policies or his standing with the base it's just a matter of sometimes he doesn't quite get what that particular district slash state wants so and in this case in tennessee again we don't know yet if they will prefer a robbie starbuck or morgan ortegas or somebody else completely we could see a total twist ending where someone else defeats both of them in the primary who knows but this has definitely raised a lot of questions about are there things within the base are there things worth criticizing trump for and worth calling him out for hoping he will maybe make change his mind he will make a correction as it were prime example again i'm from california the last full year i spent in california before i moved out here was 2018 and we had a a race for governor that year of course that was when jerry brown was finally leaving office and he would be succeeded by his lieutenant governor gavin newsom and in that election we talked a little bit about these dynamics in our california-based episode 
we had two main candidates for the nomination. One was a hardcore conservative who was an elected official in California and on the younger side as well, who really knew how to throw red meat to the base like you never would believe. And in 2018, it was an assemblyman named Travis Allen who campaigned hard on immigration, securing the border, law and order, all this kinds of stuff, which especially in California is relevant. But of course, in the Trump era, makes even more sense. The other is a businessman by the name of John Cox, who, as I said before about carpetbagging, was not from California. He was from Illinois. He ran for a bunch of offices in Illinois. He ran for like Cook County Assessor and some local offices. He ran for the House. He ran for the Senate. He even briefly ran for president in 2008 as a Republican. He's a total perennial candidate, one of those guys who just can't stop running for every office he can. And in 2018, I guess he decided, you know, what's going to be a great use of my time and money because he's a self-made multimillionaire, by the way. He has a lot of money to his name. I'm going to move to California and run for governor as a Republican. Yeah, that's that's a great idea. And he self-funded mostly his campaign, threw all that money away. He parachuted into the state, just like we saw in 2014 and in 2010, where rich out-of-staters drop into the state with their millions of dollars to buy the nomination from a scary conservative. We saw that in 2010, the governor's race there with Meg Whitman. We saw that in 2014 with a former Goldman Sachs banker and Bush administration treasury official, Neil Kashkari, who later went on to work for the Federal Reserve after his failed bid for governor against Jerry Brown. And then we had it here with John Cox, who, by the way, was an ever Trumper. And admittedly, he admits he did not vote for Trump in 2016. He won't say who he did vote for. We don't know. Again, Gary Johnson, Evan McMuffin, blank. I don't know. Mickey Mouse. Who knows? So, of course, it would come down to a tiebreaker in the form of President Trump's endorsement. Now, we all knew Trump would be way better off endorsing Allen. He was way more like him. But John Cox had an ace in the hole. Connections to Trump world. Back in 2012, God, that feels like ancient history. John Cox served on the presidential campaign of former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. I guess he was like a finance chair or something, like something higher up on the campaign. He wasn't just some staffer. He worked higher up working finances. So he's connected to Gingrich. So allegedly, Cox called former Speaker Gingrich and asked him, because Gingrich obviously has the presidency here. He's very high up in Trump's inner circle. And he asked Gingrich, hey, can you can you call the president and tell him to endorse me? So sure enough, Trump issues another generic endorsement. John Cox will be great on the border. He'll be great on law and order. I support him. And that put Cox over the line, and he won the nomination. And I was so mad. And it really did speak volumes about, again, why did Trump endorse the guy? Because he knew a guy who knew Trump. He knew someone who was connected to Trump world. And that certainly seems to be the case with Morgan Ortega's here. She worked for the Trump administration. She knew Mike Pompeo. And that seemed to be good enough for Trump. The only other credential she has to herself at this point, besides being a Fox contributor and familiarizing herself to the viewers, is that sometime after the Trump administration, she went on The View with Adam Schiff there. They both were there in studio at the table, you know, with Whoopi Goldberg and all the others. Morgan Ortega basically debated Adam Schiff on The View and rightfully so did tear him apart over all of his lies about Russia collusion and everything else and impeachment and whatnot. She did really well. Again, it amounted to no more than Ben Shapiro versus Malcolm Nance on Bill Maher's show in that it didn't matter what she said. The audience still blindly applauded for every time Adam Schiff so much as sneezed because, you know, that's what those audiences do. But she did hand it to him, which was, that was satisfying to see. But as I said that to you, Jacob, offline, and you responded with saying, you know, understandably, anybody could do that to Adam Schiff, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you could put, uh, Megan McCain could have gotten, gotten up there and done oh, that to him. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, there's, she doesn't have much street cred. Her past speaks more volumes than her present does. But either way, 
this is a very interesting development that I think we should keep a close eye on, not just the race itself, but the backlash and whether or not, because word has it that all of it has gotten directly back to Trump, that he may have made a mistake and he may have rushed out that preemptive endorsement. So maybe he'll change his mind. I don't think he has ever done that when it comes to any primary endorsements or anything. We've never heard of him changing his mind before, but in the event that he does, it definitely will be a watershed moment for certainly these midterm elections and also for his status as kingmaker in the Republican Party. He will acknowledge, okay, yeah, sometimes I make mistakes. Sometimes I should endorse people who actually are more popular with the base rather than people who just know me or have connections. So let's see how that unfolds. On a side note there, I actually want to hang on. Hold on. Hold on. Jacob, can you hear me? Yes, yes. I just received breaking news. We, we just received uh, uh, exclusive audio recording here. Apparently, there was a meeting between Trump and Mr. Robbie Starbuck. Uh, this is an exclusive right here on the right take. We got to Hang on. This is crazy. All right. I'm, I'm going to play this. Let's let's see. Let's see what happened here, guys. Speak not to me of blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. Look, you, Starbuck. All visible objects are but as pasteboard masks. Some inscrutable yet reasoning thing puts forth the molding of their features. Tis the thing behind the mask I chiefly hate. The thing that mauls and mutilates our race. Not killing us outright, but letting us live on. With half a heart and half a lung. The crew stands with me, Mr. Starbuck. You heard them swear. Okay. <laughs> that's, 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 Trump's voice got way better. Oh, my goodness. I, for, I forgot it was uh, the guy was Mr. Starbuck in that clip. Yes, yes, yes. No, that's uh, that's fun. A fun fact, of course, I mean, because when most people hear Starbuck, they think of the awful coffee chain, of course. But where do they get that name? Yes, they got the name from the character from Moby Dick, the first mate, Mr. Starbuck. Uh, it's, it's such a fun little story. I like looking at that because uh, I, obviously I think Moby Dick is the single greatest piece of literature to come out of, of America, of arguably the, not quite the English language. It's not that good, but it's definitely the great American novel. It's one of the best things to come out of American literature. And I, just, I think it's kind of funny way back when, when they were considering the names for the uh, company, Jacob, when they were getting started, they didn't decide on Starbuck right away. They originally wanted, they were inspired by Moby Dick. You know, for example, the, the mascot of Starbuck, of Starbucks is a, uh, it's a siren, you know, from like Greek mythology. They wanted to go with the nautical theme and they liked Moby Dick. They originally wanted to call Starbucks, uh, Pequods. They wanted to name it after the ship, the Pequod, mm-hmm. but they realized that just kind of sounded a little weird. And they liked Starbuck because it really has that oomph, that powerful, start with the st it starts with the letters st starbuck it really commands a presence so they went with starbucks so i mean again that's that's how old school i am that when i think i hear starbuck i immediately think of the character rather than the coffee chain well that and i don't drink coffee but i digress so moving on speaking of more election trends here this is another interesting one i had to pull up this is from newsweek i saw this last week newsweek again really doing well with some of the articles on Newsweek here. They're covering the really hard, genuinely hard-hitting subjects. I saw this and immediately, with the Virginia election in the back of my mind for context, had to talk about this. Headline. This is by John Jackson. Quote, Suburban voters, key demographic for Democrats in 2020, showing strong swing to GOP. So, of course, one of the big narratives about 2020 was that Biden won 
quote-unquote, won because he managed to swing suburban voters back to him. You know, suburban moms, white housewives who are all, Trump says mean things. Let's vote for the kind old man who's hiding in his basement. And that was a big part, allegedly, in why Trump ultimately lost. And Virginia, again, was a prime example of that, especially because, as you said, Jacob, there's arguably no greater collection of anti-Trump Republican voters in the state of Virginia. And yeah, a lot uh, of those people yeah, are Virginia nothing. and um, probably California are the two most never-Trump states that you could get. Yes, absolutely. And especially in Virginia, a lot of them are in the suburbs. So this cites a new survey – this is from the article – a new survey from Harvard University's Center for American Political Studies, CAPS. And the Harris poll. So Harvard-Harris, they put out a lot of polls together. They indicate that not only is that support among suburban voters dwindling, but suburban voters said they are also more likely to support a Republican candidate in the upcoming midterm elections. The poll, released exclusively to The Hill, found 56% of respondents who live in the suburbs said they believe Trump was a better president than Biden so far, while 44% say Biden was the better leader. That's a 12-point margin. That says Trump was better, and that's an outright majority. Data from the Pew Research Center compiled in 2021 showed Biden won 54 percent of voters from the country's suburbs in 2020, while 43 percent of voters in the suburbs cast ballots for Trump. That was a marked improvement for the Democrats over 2016 when Hillary won 45 percent of the suburbs to Trump's 47. So a narrow two-point margin there, and Trump narrowly won a plurality of suburban voters versus a double-digit margin of victory for Biden among that same demographic, 11 points, 54 to Trump's 43. The latest Harvard Caps Harris poll findings also point to trouble for Democrats going into the 2022 midterms. 57% of respondents in the suburbs said they are more likely to vote for a Republican candidate than a Democrat in the midterms. 43% said they are more likely to vote for a Democrat. During the midterm elections of 2018, when Trump was in office, suburban voters favored Democrats in many elections, which allowed the party to take control of the House of Representatives in 2018 and the Senate in 2020. So this is obviously very interesting because you look in the context of, again, Virginia. We're going to keep referring back to this again and again. I, I know we, we got to avoid the temptation to cover Glenn Youngkin a lot because, again, he is relevant to where we are. But I think everything from the election to how he's been in office so far is really important to dictating a possible future strategy for the Republican Party after 2020. And that is, of course, he did very well with suburban voters. He, I think he did. He win back suburban voters, Jacob, I believe, against McAuliffe. It's Virginia is really hard to classify what is suburban and what is not suburban. Um, I don't think he did. I don't. I don't think he. I, I've, at least some of the polls that I saw didn't show that. But again, but you know, he did very well. He came like close. Like, I think. Like they count in. Uh, no, he didn't. He got. He got blown out. But that's because of the way they classify suburbs in Virginia. Like the Arlington is technically a suburb. You know, Fairfax mm. is uh, a okay. suburb. Which is te- we would consider more urban. But you know, yeah, because it's not really. Okay, it's, it's technically part of Washington D.C. But it's just right. be, just because of the quirky way that they consider suburbs in, in Virginia. But either way, the, I guess more the stereotype. <laughs> you know, it's it's almost kind of like boomers. You know, a boomer may not necessarily be baby boomers in the age group but it is a mindset in terms of the census uses so maybe at the same sense with suburban voters that it's a mindset rather than a specific geographical location so again those voters were the ones who did flip back to yunkin away from trump that didn't vote for trump but they voted for yunkin just a year later in the state of virginia and it was driven again primarily by the school issues you know talking about critical race theory transgenderism and all kinds of other things vaccine mandates in schools that scared the socks off of these parents a lot of them are parents who said, oh, well, I, I want to be able to have a greater say in what my kids are learning. I don't want my kids to be forced to take any jab. I want my kids to be safe in their schools. And that was a huge reason why they voted for Yunkin. So that could be translating now into the national stage, <clears throat> as these polls seem to indicate, that maybe the broader agenda, again, because McAuliffe was all in on that agenda, and the Democrats at the national level are all in on, the, on that agenda. So 
basically what it's suggesting here is we could see a repeat of that going into 2022, which if we do, if uh, again, especially if you combine that with the record high numbers of rural voters, we talked about that in the post-Virginia episode, that Youngkin won rural voters by greater margins than Trump did. He got like more than 80% of rural voters in some areas. You combine record high rural support for the Republicans with shifting suburban voters back to Republicans by double digit majorities in this case, you would that would be a blowout, Jacob. They would be they could crush the Democrats in so many swing districts. Well, one thing that helps Republicans in midterm elections when you don't have a Republican president is a lot of these suburban voters today, unlike 30 years ago, are college educated. And the colleges, of course, 95, 99 percent pro-Democrat. So whenever they're having their community barbecue, if they even do that anymore, like, well, let me put it this way. Whenever they take their kids to ball games, they interact with their fellow suburbanites. It's it's hard to come out. They can't come out as pro-Trump. So when Trump isn't in office, it's easy not to talk about politics because you don't have the big, you know, the big bloviating orange man that everyone is talking about. It's just sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Nobody people want to talk about Trump. It's like, well, OK, Trump's not in office. Well, who are you voting for? Uh, I don't know. And they vote Republican. So it's much, much easier for them to vote Republican when you don't have a Republican president. It's not just Trump. When Bush was in, it was the same narrative. It's been this way for 30 years with a bunch of college-educated suburbanites, it's much, much easier for them to hide their conservative leanings when you've got a Democrat in office and uh, the buck stops with them and you've got midterms with a bunch of no-name people running for Congress. Exactly. And I, it has been said, of course, that Trump got way more people politically involved than like any time in modern history. Like literally had Trump not been a thing and 2016 was Hillary versus Jeb or Hillary versus Marco Rubio, you wouldn't see as many people as politically engaged as they are now. Trump very much brought non-political, apolitical people into the fold of politics, which you could argue is a good thing or a bad thing. We don't know. And now, yeah, now that he's gone, a lot of those people are kind of going back to normal, quote unquote, as it were. Speaking of going back to normal, the GOP has decided that they are just going to revert to normalcy for them. What is normal for them, which is basically the 1990s, back when Bill Clinton was president and Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House. They have chosen to completely ignore the GOP base that voted for Trump in 2016 demanding a non-interventionist foreign policy, demanding that we not go to war with Russia, that we not antagonize Russia, that we look after American interests first. That the era of Bush was over. So as you know, Tucker Carlson on his Fox News show has been going hard against the idea of in- intervening in the Russia-Ukraine crisis, which we talked about as the main topic last episode. Well, there's been a new development. Just uh, break. We got breaking news today. The U.S. has sent an additional three thousand troops to Eastern Europe. So we already spent. We already sent several thousand. I think, think eighty five hundred, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, so now we're sending oh an additional God. three thousand. They're building up. Biden is looking to defend Ukraine by any means necessary if Russia decides to step one foot over the border. And of course, we're going to end up defending it with our blood and our treasure. And this is one of the things that Ron Paul – this was the main thing that Ron yes, Paul ran against. Ron Paul. And this is one the main thing that Donald Trump ran against in mm-hmm. 2016, the idea that we should spend our treasure and our blood over in the Middle East defending people that our people don't care anything about, defending interests that do not interest us at all. And the same goes for Eastern Europe. Ukraine has nothing that we want. At least in Iraq, you could say, okay – they're, they've got oil, at least in uh, you know their neighboring Saudi Arabia, na- neighboring Kuwait. We kind of want to control the oil supply. We depend on that for energy to fill our cars with. Ukraine has nothing. We don't rely on Russian natural gas. We're not Germany. We don't need access through Ukraine. And besides, they can go through Poland. They don't need Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian nation have literally nothing that the United that the American people need or want. But yet, our government is insisting. 
on treating Ukraine the same way that the UK treated Belgium, which precipitated World War I. Going back in history, if you remember, the reason why the UK entered World War I was because they had a treaty with Belgium going back to 1834, long before most of the people who were around during World War I were even alive. In fact, almost everyone was dead, uh, you know, had not been born at that point. So they had this treaty that if Belgium was attacked, they would come to their aid. And so when Germany simply wanted to go through Belgium, Britain was like, OK, well, we've got to honor our word for our national honor. We're going to go to war with Germany. And they ended up losing half their young men because of it. So you've got a situation here with Ukraine where our foreign policy elites decided back in the 90s before most of the people in the U.S. military today were even born – that once the Soviet Union fell, that we were going to spread liberal democracy throughout the world. We were going to do it peacefully if possible, but violently if necessary. And recently, the GOP senators have been asked about Tucker Carlson's tirade against the constant intervention by the GOP. Because, by the way, as we mentioned last week, the GOP really doesn't have a foreign policy that's any different from the Democratic Party. All the staffers at the Republican National Committee, everyone who runs the GOP, all the elites, they all agree with Joe Biden on foreign policy. There is absolutely no daylight between Joe Biden and them. They haven't attempted to win any political points on this issue. If, if anything, they basically criticized him for not going hard enough. So this is an article from Politico, GOP to Tucker Carlson. We're, uh, we're the decision makers on Ukraine, not you. And you can basically read that of them telling all of his viewers as well. We are the decision makers on Ukraine, not you. You elect us to make decisions for you and your interest and the interest and what we deem to be your best interest, not you. So this is from John Cornyn, Senator John Cornyn of Texas. He said, quote, he's obviously not in, talking about Carlson. He's obviously not in a position of being responsible for those decisions. And we are. And obviously what Cornyn means is Tucker Carlson is an answerable to the donors. He's not answerable to the foreign policy elites. He's not answerable to the military industrial complex. We are. Gee, sounds familiar. If we want to win re-election, we have to do what our superiors expect us to do, which is to continue to beat the war drums and continue to push America on the brink of war with Russia so we can continue what Bill Clinton started. Because just to just to go back a little bit into history, when the Cold War ended, the strategy, of course, Francis Fukuyama wrote that famous book, The End of History, the, the belief among American foreign policy elites, the bipartisan belief was that America had won the Cold War. Now it was time to win the war of history. In other words, now it was time to usher in basically the millennial rule of Pax Americana. Now it was time to usher in a world in which there would be no more war. We could stifle any kind of autocrat. We could spread democracy throughout the world and basically create a perfect utopia based on McDonald's and American democracy. And this was actually – this was their goal. I don't remember who said it, but they actually said that their goal was to put a McDonald's in every single country around the world because the idea was if you – because it was a big deal when they opened up a McDonald's in Russia because it was like, OK, now Russia is opening up to the West. McDonald's is setting the stage. It's so – I mean when you think of what represents American democracy, it's, it's a greasy fast food chain that's unhealthy for you that's killing Americans left and right. Like this is what sets the stage for American democracy and the triumph of American capitalism. And full disclosure, as a former lifetime fan of McDonald's, even I will concede that, yes, it absolutely is is a killer. I, I go there very rarely now when I'm desperate or when I have nothing else to eat. So the idea was that now that the Soviet Union has fallen, the Soviet Union has been split up into multiple states. We will now expand using the European Union. We will expand into Eastern Europe. We will also use NATO to swallow up all the countries of the former Warsaw Pact, and eventually Russia will become so isolated 
that they will feel it necessary to elect people who are pro-America and pro-West, like a, that are that support NATO. And eventually, if you can conquer the Russian government, conquer the Russian people through politics, then you can just invite them into NATO as well. And eventually, NATO will basically become one, as George H.W. Bush said it, the new one world order. You could have everyone would be a part of the alliance. Like rather than have these alliances, NATO would basically become what the United – what they wanted the United Nations to be, a world police force in which every country in the world belongs to, basically the new League of Nations. And this – the perfect example is the election of 19 – I believe it was 96 when Boris Yeltsin ran for president in Russia – the United States flooded Russia through the U- through USAID, through the National Endowment for Democracy, through Soros's organizations, through all these other – which basically Soros was a part of – he and his Open Society Foundations or the, the foundations that came before OSI, OSF, they were basically part of the Clinton administration. Like they ran foreign policy right along with the State Department. But we meddled in that election so much, we basically flipped the election to Yeltsin because the Communist Party candidate was actually going to win. And because we flooded Russian media with American campaign, with all of our campaign tactics, um, who's the Dick Morris was really involved in this at the time, um, and a lot of uh, high level Clinton staffers and advisor, because we did that, Yeltsin ended up winning. And the idea was we simply could not allow the communists to win this election because Yeltsin was going to push Russia more in our direction. Well, Yeltsin was a corrupt drunk. He was a, he was an autocrat. The uh, people of Russia obviously did not like him, and that was kind of the idea. If we can have a weak leader elected, then we can keep Russia weak, and we can eventually force them to come into our sphere. And an example is Serbia. When we bombed Serbia, Serbia is has been tradi- a traditional ally of Russia. They're an orthodox country just like Russia. They've always been on good terms with Russia. Our bombing of Serbia, in which we killed 10,000 civilians and bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade, that was basically us beating up Russia's little brother and in front of his eyes and telling him there's nothing you can do about it. And there was nothing he could do about it. All he, all he could do was sit back and watch his little brother get beat up because he was too weak, too corrupt. Um, he, his, his people were basically starving. He couldn't do anything to fight back and defend Serbia. Well, that created resentment, obviously, understandably, with a lot. Because if you remember World War One, Russia went to war to defend Serbia. Serbia was invaded by Austria-Hungary, so that's what sparked Russia to enter the war. So our bombing of Serbia created a lot of resentment among Russia's, which uh, what Russia, which led to the rise of Vladimir Putin. And so now Putin, Putin's mindset is he wants to create a Russia that's strong enough to never be able to to never have to let that happen again. Like never have to sit back and watch his allies get beat up again. Never have to sit back and allow his country to be broken up and dissolved again, like the Soviet Union was. So now enter the 2020s. We've got Ukraine, which was promised NATO membership by George W. Bush. By the way, George W. Bush promised NATO membership not only to Ukraine but to Georgia. He went to Georgia and promised that eventually we would put Georgia on a path to NATO citizenship. You mean to tell me that W went down to Georgia? W went down to Georgia. The, the, the devil himself went down to Georgia. Forgot the other, his fiddle. He the forgot other his Georgia, fiddle. though. But this was – and this is what led to the color revolutions. The idea was you have all these color revolutions. You overthrow their governments. You get Western-friendly governments who are going to prepare their nations for NATO and eventually will swallow them all up. Well, the GOP, the GOP senators at the time, the Republican Party was against the bombing of Serbia. This is one of the things that the Republican Party lashed out at Bill Clinton for. We were attacking a defenseless, helpless, small nation state. Basically just trying to flex our muscles and the muscles of NATO. 
And this is what led to the rise of non-interventionism. If you watch the debates between Al Gore and George W. Bush, George W. Bush ran on a non-interventionist platform. In fact, he was very Wait, really? explicit that he would not – Yeah, if you go back and watch the debate between him and Gore, this was one of his uh, famous lines. He said that we've been too arrogant, said we've been um, going around using our military and our – I'm paraphrasing, but he was basically saying we've been having a foreign policy of being a bully and we need to pull back and not do that. We need to focus on our own issues. And this was one of the selling points for George W. Bush. Because Shoot. at the time, the overwhelming majority – this is why McCain lost. One of the reasons why he lost to Bush in the primary in 2000 right, right. was because McCain, obviously, he's always been a neocon. He's always been an interventionist. The Republican Party was overwhelmingly non-interventionist by 2000 after watching what Bill Clinton did to Serbia, which – I mean with the majority of Americans being Christians, our country going over there and siding with the Muslims against the Christians – in their civil war was just unthinkable to most American Christians who were actually paying attention. But not only that, then once the Monica Lewinsky scandal was going on, <laughs> then Bill Clinton decides to go bomb Sudan. He decides, okay, well, I've got something going on. I'm going to have to go drop some bombs on Sudan. We've got some terrorist activity over there, so we're going to, uh, you know, we're going to unleash our military on them. Isn't that pretty much the presidential get get out of jail free card? Whenever something happens, a scandal or some bad domestic news, I just drop bombs on some country. It is because the immediate knee jerk reaction is, okay, well, let's go get all of our uh, all of our priests and our rabbis and our pastors together, and let's all pray for the troops. And no self-respecting, patriotic, loyal American citizen would stand against the troops, would he? And this is, of course, the guilt trip in that. I mean, you know, if, you, if the president orders – If you're against war, you must hate troops, If right? you're against the war, you must hate the troops. You must want uh, Americans coming back in body bags. And that, that's, the, of course, the guilt trip that they play on that. So at the time in 2000, the Republican Party was was very Buchananite in that we were – Nice. Like after Pat Buchanan, we were wanting our troops to come home. Um, I remember as a kid, Americans just normies, like uh, being very – uh, perturbed that we still had troops in germany mm-hmm. because the idea was look the you know the berlin wall fell 15 years ago why are we still occupying germany germans don't want us there germans don't like us there so why are we antagonizing a would-be ally one of our alleged allies by continuing to occupy their country and it wasn't just germany south korea japan this is what led to the rise obviously of ron paul of eventually bernie sanders even had a foreign policy he wanted to pull back and eventually Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. I mean, you get to the point in 2016 where Donald Trump is standing on the stage in South Carolina, one of the most military-heavy states in the country. I mean, you've got like 50 military bases all stacked up, lined up along the coast of South Carolina. And he gets up there and slams George W. Bush, slams the Iraq War, slams the war in Afghanistan, and promises to bring all the troops home. And everyone stands up and cheers, which shows a marked difference from 2012 to 2016. Ron Paul got booed for that very same thing. That's right. Four yeah, years yeah. later, Donald Trump is cheered like a hero for saying that same thing. So the grassroots Republican Party is not with the GOP on this. But what's interesting is the GOP, they acted like none of that ever happened. They accepted Trump as their nominee. They worked with him the best they could. They got rid of him as soon as they got the opportunity to. And now they're back to square one. Now everything, it's 1995. Newt Gingrich is still Speaker of the House. Bill Clinton is still in the White House. And we've got to pick up right where Bill Clinton started. There really are few areas in which the GOP wants to go back to the way things were more than on the issue of foreign policy because i mean with trump you know they could handle you know trump changing the narrative on say immigration arguably or or even trade but with foreign policy it's like no 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 no. we want to be able to go back to war you know that's the one thing that they're going to try to revert harder than ever 
from the Trump era, which is real. It shows that they're learning nothing and that they don't care about their base, quite frankly, because, yeah, the Republican base, which, uh, again, my age is showing here. When you said that Bush was against war in 2000, that just blew my mind. That's like that's like if Richard Nixon was pro-communist. You know, it's just it's unfathomable to me. But to know he stacked his cabinet full of neocons. But either way, the point being that the base could not be clearer on this, especially after Afghanistan. Like I said, we just got out of the longest war in our history, which was at this point, I hate to say it, it was objectively a failure. We failed. We lost. We're war weary. We are tired. We're done. Give us a break, coach. We're, we want to be out of the game for a while, but they're just like, nope, nope, nope. We got to go back to war. You know, Ukraine, Russia, oh, oh, Taiwan, China. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. Got to go fast. Like they just, they well, can't stop sending us to war. Well, I'm sick know, of it. Well, I know. Well, this is one thing that even Obama noticed one time in a cabinet meeting. He told one of his aides, he said, this, this town, Tom Washington said that this town really has a strong proclivity for war. I've noticed. Like, yeah. Didn't every, he also, he also campaigned on being against the war, right? He said, oh, yeah. He promised in 2008 he would bring all the troops over from Iraq and Afghanistan within one year. Which, well, spoiler, Iraq, Iraq, he, just he, Iraq. But, um, but, but he, he promised within one year, which he failed to do that. And then, of course, even then, the withdrawal was so botched, we had ISIS come flooding into the field of vacuum, and he was forced to go back in by the end of his presidency. Well, you know what's interesting? You mentioned Afghanistan. Obviously, the American people were, were glad to get out of Afghanistan up to yeah. the way it went at the botched withdrawal. But what was the line that Fox News was running with during all that time? That the Taliban – let me guess. Uh, oh, like the women will not have I rights mean, anymore? No, I mean I know you don't watch Fox News much like I don't watch not Fox anymore. News. <laughs> but at the time, and if you think back to August, the line they continually ran with – if you remember you and I spoke to a Fox News employee at one point. Oh, boy. The line they were running <laughs> with at the time, and this is apparently what they were drilling in all of their employees – is that the United States should have never left Afghanistan. This was the official the, line from Fox News that they were running 24-7. They the were Dan trying Crenshaw their best. line, basically. Yeah, the Dan Crenshaw line, that the United States should have never left Afghanistan. It was a mistake to leave Afghanistan. But as they do, whenever you have a Democrat in office, they couldn't necessarily attack Trump because they know their audience would react negatively to that. Mm-hmm. So they ignored the fact that it was Trump's deal to pull out of Afghanistan. And they tried to blame it all on Biden. At the very beginning, they were against the idea of withdrawing from Afghanistan. Yep. When they struck the deal with the Taliban in twenty, this would be uh, February 2020, 2020 yep. they were vehemently opposed to that because their view of the Taliban is someone that you don't negotiate with. They view the Taliban the same way that they think we should view Russia. You basically tell them, here are our terms. You either meet the terms or we're just going to come in and annihilate every one of you. They basically That's pulled the, a Tim Ryan and essentially conflated for lower, American, lower information Americans. They conveyed the – idea that the Taliban is basically the same as Al-Qaeda. You know, they're, they're yes. just terrorists. Correct. We should, and we don't negotiate with terrorists. So it's like, okay, yeah, you don't negotiate with Al-Qaeda. You don't, you don't negotiate with ISIS. But the Taliban, they're more – they had more institutional power in yes. Afghanistan than Al-Qaeda or ISIS ever did. So, I mean, naturally, it, it sucks because they the, aren't great people, but who else are you going to negotiate with? Because the GOP establishment wanted us to remain in Afghanistan in perpetuity. Like McCain, like they asked McCain, how long do we need to stay in Afghanistan? And he even said 100 years if necessary. And that was his, and that was his open position. He was very open about that, that this is something that we need to keep troops on the ground in perpetuity to make sure that they remain a democracy, that this was not something that he had behind, like a lot of the neocons behind closed doors. He was very open about this. Lindsey Graham was very open about his views on that. And it obviously, I mean, like the Dan Crenshaws and all the rest of them and the people who run Fox News, people who run uh, Con Inc., they were very open about their initial opposition of withdrawing from Afghanistan. The most they would concede is, OK, we can withdraw most of the troops, but we need to keep a contingent there at a few military right, bases. Right, a few bases. What a disgusting man, I got to say on a side note about John McCain especially he what he went through as a prisoner of war he was tortured and everything in vietnam for him especially 
to dare to have the gall to turn around and say we need to be there for 100 years so that hundreds more men can go through exactly what i went through in vietnam if not worse like how can how did he sleep with himself so at there, night? there's an explanation for that and um we're, we're going to get on get into that a little bit more in this politico article but the reason uh if you, if you think about it okay john mccain was tortured mm-hmm. and he came away from it Unable to raise his arms above his shoulders because of his injuries. He came away from it wanting more war. So think about how how he psychoanalyzes his own torture and his own uh, captivity. Think of it more of a as a religious martyr. If a religious martyr, if you capture, let's say, you captured a Muslim terrorist and you tortured, you waterboard that terrorist, and the terrorist comes out of it more determined than ever to join back up with Al Qaeda and continue the fight. Well, he's obviously a martyr. He's willing to endure any kind of torture. He's willing to endure death and martyrdom for his faith, for his religion. For John McCain, his religion was America is democracy. Right. Not America, because we weren't defending America in Vietnam. We weren't defending America. We were fighting communism. We were fighting communism. We were fighting for democracy. We were fighting for the Truman Doctrine. We were fighting to overthrow dictators and free foreign peoples from their chains. Basically, we were doing – this is the part of the mythology that leads to – there's a direct line from the myth that the North fought the Civil War to free the slaves. You draw that myth straight down to the American uh, to the uh, Spanish-American War. It's the myth that America went to war to free the Cubans. Then you jumped to World War One. We went to fight for democracy. World War Two. We went to free. We went to uh, you know end fight the fascism. Di- yeah, we went to fight fascism. Although we were we were attacked first. We didn't go to it fight was a, anybody. It was purely a defensive yeah, a reactionary defensive war. war on our part. And yeah. you go to to Korea. The idea that we fought the Korean War to free the Koreans. Vietnam. We fought to fee- uh, free the Vietnamese. All the way up to the present day. And the, you create this mythology that the American people have never fought a war since 1776 in their own defense. They've only fought wars in the defense of other peoples and out of altruism. That we are 1776 to, and part two in 1812, technically. But yeah, same, same yeah they ignore that. But, yeah, we, but everybody they, ignores, everyone but, forgets that was really just 1776 part two. That's but all the narrative, the narrative along that is that the American people are so altruistic, they are willing to give their sons and daughters as sacrificial lambs, as uh, to offer them up as sacrifice in order to spread freedom. This is the mythology that they have ingrained into our elite on both sides of the aisle that it's okay to sacrifice Midwestern farm boys to on the altar of democracy because they'll be dying for freedom. It won't be their freedom. It won't be their mama's freedom or the daddy's freedom. It'll be some foreigner's freedom, but what's important is they will be dying for freedom. And this is the mentality that's leading us on the brink of war with Russia and nuclear power. And because, potential war with China over Taiwan, and possibly. This, right, and this is what John McCain, this is his thinking. Yes, he endured torture, and yes, he knew that his policies were allowing other Americans to endure torture and causing foreigners to be tortured at the hands of Americans. But he didn't care because just as martyrs and just as people who were tortured for religious reasons, whether it was Protestants being tortured by Catholics, Catholics being tortured by Protestants, you know, 500 years ago, they were willing to continue because in their minds, they were serving a higher cause. They were serving the greater good. And so it really is a religious fanaticism that these people, many of these, like the Dan Crenshaws, think of Dan Crenshaw, the guy's an Iraq war veteran. You would, think after, you would think after going to Iraq and seeing the futility of that, he would come away with the message, with the lesson that most Iraq war veterans came away with is that the whole thing was a waste of time. It was all a waste. But no, he's a fanatic. He is a religious fanatic who genuinely believes that the United States is basically I, – I don't think he believes – I don't know if he believes in God or not, but basically that the United States is preordained – through divine intervention to spread democracy and freedom to all the peoples of the world. And it is this is a dangerous, dangerous fanaticism that has gotten tens of Americans killed needlessly 
over something that – and the way they do it is they convince the American people that if you don't go fight them over there – They're, They're going to come gonna, over here. Yeah, so if yeah. you don't go oh. fight those those backward third world Libyans in Libya, the Libyans are going to somehow – I don't know. They're going to find a raft and they're going to raft across the Atlantic Ocean and then they're going to kill you and they're well, going to kill your wives and daughters. And well, because I, here's here's the thing, though. There actually is some truth to the idea that terrorists, of course, it happened on 9-11. There's I, there's some truth to the idea that terrorists could eventually come over here and kill us. But you know how they're how they're doing it? They're sleep. They're sneaking across the southern border because mm-hmm. no one is covering that because anybody can just waltz around the southern border you got covid you've, you've got leprosy you know you can come right over the southern border we don't care because so, we're focused on the ukrainian border exactly that's exactly what trump said at his rally in texas it was some of my friends who are like i said hardcore far right never trumpers they think oh he was a cook he didn't do enough even they were saying dude that rally in texas was one of the best rallies he has ever given he promised to pardon the january 6 prisoners he said like both parties care more about ukraine's borders than our borders like dude is a legend so man I, like oh, so i got a little great. story about that so i was talking oh, okay. to someone here in dc and i mentioned uh, mentioned i worked for the governor of massachusetts back in 2018 worked for his re-election and this has happened on more than one occasion i remember i mentioned this to some black girls one time they said oh so you're a democrat from alabama i said no <laughs> i'm a republican They're like, oh because they assume Massachusetts must have a Democrat governor because it's a heavily blue state. But they didn't, yeah. <laughs> they didn't know that oh it's a Republican voter, a uh, governor that I was working for. But I mentioned this guy that was working for the governor of Massachusetts back in 2018, and uh, and he he said uh, out of the blue, he says, "Oh, did you hear what Trump said yesterday?" I'm thinking, Trump? No. Why, why would I follow what Trump is? I don't like. I don't follow his press releases. I don't really keep up with Trump that much. I said, "No. What? What do you say?" He said, "He said uh, he said that if he gets reelected, he's going to pardon all the January 6 protesters." He kind of chuckled. I said, "Well, I mean, it, I, I took kind of an anti-Trump rant." I said, "Well, he could have done that, you know, back when he was in office and everything." And it kind of took him off guard because he realized that I support the pardoning of the January 6 prisoners. Oh, and uh, yeah, so he's kind of <laughs> and he quickly ended the conversation. Very quickly moved away because he, he insurrectionist kept, here. Yeah, he didn't realize because in his mind first of all he's probably never met a republican in, in his entire life he never had a conversation with a republican Bad. his entire yeah. life and he assumed that since i worked for the governor of massachusetts i must be a democrat but yeah that was pretty funny but anyway moving on to uh, further down this politico article the author writes the fox news talking about tucker carlson the fox news prime time hosts and others on the far right have excused and even rationalized russia's aggression toward ukraine and downplayed its relevance to u.s national security and while GOP senators are shrugging off his name and shame campaign, Carlson's views are permeating the GOP base in a way that could undermine Republicans' efforts to emphasize cross-party unity as they seek to deter a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Cross-party unity, the uniparty, that's basically what they're trying to maintain. Um, quote, on individuals up here who are decision makers, I don't hear any disagreement about the position Russia is in, said um, Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota. So think about that. Of individuals who are the decision makers in the swamp, he doesn't hear any opposition. He hears no disagreement whatsoever. Not one senator. He doesn't hear a single senator who is part of the decision-making process disagreeing with our position on Russian Ukraine. Do you think that the American people are overwhelmingly united in their support of Ukraine on this issue? I think the overwhelming Obviously, majority – Of course they, they want to go to war. Of, of course. course they want to go to war. Of course they think that we should uh, we should expend all of our foreign policy capital defending a country that they care absolutely nothing about. Maybe these people should stop and think from why Tucker has the record-smashing ratings that he does. Maybe it's because, huh, he actually speaks to what a lot of American voters think. Well, it Crazy sh- concept, it right? Shows, it shows their attitude toward the voters. It shows their attitude toward Trump's supporters because their attitude is basically Tucker is a fly – We'll just shoo him away. He has no decision. He's not. He doesn't have to face the ramifications of it. He's it's not, not like in the decision making process. He's literally. It's not like he's literally the most popular cable news 
talk show host of all time. Like, yeah. Yeah, let's let's see these senators start up a podcast and see, oh, they do. And nobody That's listens right. to them. Dan Crenshaw. Oh, yeah. no, Who's oh going to listen to Ted Cruz's a little podcast? <laughs> the disconnect between the GOP foreign policy establishment and the pro-Donald Trump base of the party on the value of intervening in foreign quagmires isn't new. But the crisis in Ukraine is exposing the widening gulf between the two camps when it comes to committing U.S. resources in support of fledgling democracies under siege by authoritarian regimes. And again, this is the bipartisan foreign policy view that it is – since Truman, it is our sacred duty to commit U.S. resources in support of fledgling democracies under siege by authoritarian regimes. And, of course, our regime decides what constitutes a fledgling democracy and what constitutes an authoritarian regime. But most of the people in our current regime believe that Donald Trump was an authoritarian. So does that mean that the U.S. should commit funds, taxpayer funds to defeat Donald Trump? We kind of did. In recent days, Carlson has attacked Republicans who are pushing for a stronger response to Moscow's aggression, slamming Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa as ignorant and Senator Jim Risch of Idaho as a moron masquerading as a senator and a pompous neocon buffoon oh. simply for advocating longstanding GOP orthodoxy when it comes to Russia. This is not longstanding GOP orthodoxy when it comes to Russia. This was longstanding GOP orthodoxy when it came to the Soviet Union. The GO this GOP orthodoxy stopped when the Soviet Union ceased to exist. This was not the GOP orthodoxy during the 1990s. This was the Democratic Party's orthodoxy during the 1990s. And again, like I said, they're trying to go back to the days. They want to pretend like they're back in 1995 when Bill Clinton is president, George Soros is running the State Department by proxy, and we're bringing – we're reeling in Eastern Europe into NATO. Carlson has even defended Moscow's buildup of troops along the border with Ukraine and President Putin's rationale for it in a stark departure from the tough-on-Russia posture that has defined the Republican Party since the start of the Cold War. Meanwhile, Ukraine remains under active threat from invasion that some are warning could be just the first domino to fall in Eastern Europe. And again, this is complete fear-mongering. Vladimir Putin has no interest in invading Hungary. He has no interest in invading Poland. His sole interest is in securing his borders. That means making sure that all the countries that border Russia do not place NATO troops and NATO missiles, NATO anti-nuclear defense systems in those countries that border his country. But the idea is this: they've always got to play every single dictator as the next Hitler. This is what they did with Muammar Gaddafi. This is what they did with Bashar Saddam Hussein, Bashar al-Assad. Now they're trying to treat Putin as the next Hitler because, the, of course, the mythology goes – that because we didn't stop Hitler from taking the German-speaking sections of the Czech Republic, of what is today the Czech Republic, that that's what precipitated World War II. And if we don't stop Putin from taking the Russian-speaking sections of Ukraine, that's going to be the next Czechoslovakia. Then he's going to demand Poland, and then history is going to repeat him. Going to repeat itself. And this is this is the line they're trying to run with that we have to stop Putin from taking the Russian-speaking sections of his neighbor, otherwise he will become the next Hitler. Florida Senator Marco Rubio said, quote, I don't agree with those views, talking about Tucker Carlson's views. He's the top Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee. He said, quote, it's the U.S. interest not just in Europe but around the world and not having countries decide that belongs to us. We're going to go ahead and take it. Why? Why is that in our interest? How is that in our interest? How does it how does it affect one single American if Putin looks at Ukraine and says, quote, that belongs to us. We're going to go ahead and take it. It doesn't affect any Americans. It doesn't affect our country at all. No American anywhere in Alabama, no American anywhere in the state of Wyoming cares one whit whether or not Kiev belongs to Russia or belongs to Ukraine. They do not care. It does not affect us. It does not threaten our national security. It does not threaten us economically. It does not threaten us socially. It poses no threat whatsoever to Americans or their country. Yeah, we care more about things like, oh, I don't know. 
a wide open southern border, uh, an opioid crisis, uh, bad trade deals ripping us off and China shutting down our factories, you know, the little things like that, you know, little policy details. So get this. Some GOP senators rolled their eyes when asked about Carlson's attacks and indicated the far right host isn't uh, isn't impacting their calculus on an emerging legislative path. Can I just say I love that you said this is Politico, right? Yeah, yeah. I love that they constantly describe they're repeatedly calling Tucker far right. Just constantly, yeah. they have to throw that on there every single time. Far right, far right, yeah, far right, far right. Well, I mean, what does that say about his viewers if he's supposedly so far right? Am I right? Well, apparently, America's moving in a far right direction if he's got that nice. many viewers. Nice. <laughs> so they rolled their eyes when they were asked about it, um, and they said that his his views aren't impacting their calculus on emerging on an emerging legislative path, even as his views are picking up steam among the base. Quote, I get great intel briefings, and we have trusted advisors that provide many points of view, and I would say I'm pretty well educated on this subject, Ernst, the combat veteran, said when asked about Carlson's attacks. So she gets intel briefings from neocons, and she has trusted neocon advisors that provide many neo, many different nuanced neocon points of view, so she's pretty well educated on the subject. He called Rich a moron masquerading as a senator, so the more, and a pompous buffoon. So Rich, the top Republican on the Foreign Relations Committee, declined to comment on Tuesday when asked about Carlson's insults, but remember – Previously, he said, we've always defended democracies. And that was that was Rich's view that, you know, this isn't a big deal. I mean, we've always defended democracies. If there's an autocrat that's bullying a democracy, we always threaten to go to war if necessary to defend that democracy. The rift comes as top Republicans are rallying behind President Joe Biden's decision to send U.S. troops to Eastern Europe to bolster the defenses of NATO partners that could later see their borders breached, too. So Republicans can't agree with Biden on anything. They literally can't vote for any of his bills, but they're more than willing to rally behind him when it comes to sending troops to another country that could get those troops killed over an issue that does not concern Americans. Senator John Corn of Texas, member of the bipartisan group crafting legislation to sanction Moscow and support Kiev, dismissed Carlson's criticisms and said the crisis goes beyond just Ukraine. Quote, he's obviously not in a position of being responsible for those decisions, and we are. <laughs> So again, this is this is the just arrogance the hubris. of it all. The oh arrogance, of, yeah, the hubris, yeah. Tucker Carlson, he's not in the same position as we are. He just doesn't get it. Like, he doesn't it, have the proper pedigrees, you know. He this is just so disgusting because it's not just Carlson; it's all of his viewers. It's the people who are tuning in. If his views were not for us, if his views were not popular, people would not watch his show. And see, this is what irks them to no to, to the nth degree. Back in the nineties, before we had the internet. Before we had the, you know, back in the early 2000s, there was no dissenting view on the right. The Pat Buchanan's, the Ron Pauls, they were relegated to news to newsletters. Fox News was just getting started at that time. Like and even, I mean, Fox News even back then, they were pretty much in sync with the GOP establishment. Right. But you had Rush Limbaugh, and that was it. But yeah, you had talk radio, and at that time, if someone wanted to go outside the mainstream, they had to send out a newsletter to people's <laughs> mailboxes. Those so, chain emails. So this is what they're not used to. And if it weren't for the internet, Tucker Carlson would not be on his show because i guarantee you the people at fox news they can't stand the fact that they have oh, to yeah. keep him on the air and mm-hmm. if it weren't for the internet and the fact that his views are so popular that his audience would literally follow him online to his own platform uh, unlike bill o'reilly's audience which is yeah. you know didn't really fades didn't really go very well rip but with tucker carlson he could actually make probably a better living on his own being a podcaster than he could i mean he would literally be the joe rogan of politics i was gonna say it's the same with joe rogan that's why he's absolutely crushing all of his you know d-list critics in this in this whole spotify war and, and that's why too with, with tucker there's a reason why there was legitimate serious speculation for a time that he might run for president next and <laughs> if he ran let me tell you if trump didn't run and tucker did I think Tucker would probably be the front runner. Maybe DeSantis would be his top rival, but Tucker could very easily win that nomination if he wanted to, I think. But the point is, Tucker would would not be on Fox News if it weren't for the age of the internet. 
like if it weren't for the internet and his ability to go elsewhere and you know provide competition, Fox News would be able to just fire him and that'd be the end of him, and they'd replace him with someone more Hannity-esque. But uh, but this is this is a big headache for the GOP because he's starting to introduce ideas into Republican voters who previously were asleep on this issue. I mean, they would just go with whatever Trey Gowdy says. Yeah, reading the comments on a lot of articles when typically, and I know I've noticed a shift recently in the past couple of months. It was so depressing about six months ago. An article on Russia would come up on the Russia Ukraine instance, and all the comments from Republican, whether it's Breitbart, Fox News, anywhere, all the comments would basically be just riffing on Biden. Like they're basically being, okay, Biden's being weak. This is why Russia's doing this. Biden's being weak. This is why we're having to do this. Rather than think critically about what's actually happening and form an educated opinion on world events and foreign affairs, it was all just F Biden, F Biden, F Biden. It was all just you know riffing on Biden rather than actually coming up with the, an alternate strategy. Now you're st- – because of thanks to Tucker Carlson and others who actually have a megaphone and can present alternate viewpoints because look, the average normie doesn't know anything about foreign policy. I'm not trying to sound elitist, but this is just reality. You go have a conversation with the average person on the street and ask them about the Ukraine crisis. They don't know what you're talking about. You can't really form an opinion on something unless you hear differing viewpoints and hear their opinions. Opinions beget opinions, and this is what drives the GOP crazy because they – they are supposed to be able to control the narrative and control the opinions. Carlson has spared no one from the gauntlet of his top-rated Fox News show, which boasts millions of viewers on average night. He targeted Rish after the Idahoan appeared on CNN over the weekend along the panel's chair, Senator Bob Menendez. We mentioned this, how they appeared on CNN together in the last episode. And they were, of course, touting their work on a bipartisan bill aimed at deterring Russia. In recent weeks, influential conservatives and far-right prov- and provocateurs like Carlson have been openly questioning the value of siding with Ukraine. In a nod to Trump's America First mantra, many have argued that the U.S. should be more concerned with protecting its own borders than defending Ukraine's. Who would have thought? Like, what, what, a, what a far-right concept that America as a sovereign nation should care more about its borders than they do about Ukraine's borders, which, by the way, we don't even have an alliance with. Quote, why is it disloyal to side with Russia, but loyal to side with Ukraine? Carlson asked in a January 24th episode, calling Ukraine, quote, strategically irrelevant to the U.S. He later said that Putin, quote, just wants to keep his western border secure, adding that, quote, it makes sense that Putin doesn't want Ukraine to join the NATO alliance. Texas Representative Michael McCall, the top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, said in an interview that Ukraine, quote, should have a right to self-determination if they want to join NATO. I've got a better idea. How about the American people have a right to self-determination? When have the American people been asked if they would like to stay a part of NATO after the Soviet Union fell? When have the American people ever been asked about their views on foreign policy? Or when have the American people ever elected someone to office who has actually followed through on their promises other than Trump? And exactly. he, was a, he was a foreign done, and now, as you can tell, the Republican Party is trying to erase his foreign policy memory mm-hmm. from existence. There's a, there's a libertarian podcaster named Tom Woods. He has a saying that no matter who you elect, you will always get John McCain. Oh, that hurts. Like, it's it's true, but God, yeah, it it's hurts. True. In oh. Ukraine's case, the country is viewed as the front line in Putin's bid to reclaim power over former Soviet states and weaken Western alliances like NATO. Many officials warn that if Putin takes Ukraine, he won't stop there. He'll continue to push into Eastern Europe and threaten NATO allies, whom the U.S. and other alliance members are treaty-bound to defend from a foreign attack. GOP lawmakers argue that supporting Ukraine now working to deter a Russian invasion reduces the likelihood that U.S. troops would need to engage in combat with Russian forces down the line. So... This doesn't make any sense. If you bring Ukraine into NATO, so their argument is we've got to deter Russia basically so we can keep Ukraine as a buffer zone. 
Because if we don't deter Russia and Russia is right next to NATO, that could end up increasing the risk of having to engage Russia in the future. But wait, so so, so the solution br- is bring Ukraine into NATO. Yeah. So then Russia is right next but, to NATO. Yeah, anyway. it, doesn't, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make oh. any sense, sense whatsoever. And it's only, it shows this is what GOP lawmakers have said. It shows that the GOP lawmakers are basically on the back bench. It's the Demo- it's the National Endowment for Democracy, which is run by Democrats. It's Freedom House, which is run by Democrats. It's all of Soros's orgs, which are run by Democrats. It's the uh, Republican, and there's there's also the Republican National Institute, the Democrat National Institute, and they're basically run by they're both run by neocons, and they sponsor center right parties and center left parties in other countries. It's all run by Democrats and Democrat aligned Republicans, and it shows that the GOP is basically being left on the back burner, and they're trying to play catch up. They don't know what's going on. Like they're not thinking critically about any of this. They're just trying to sound tougher than Democrats. That's the crazy thing too, because when you bring that up, and it reminds me back to the point you made that like both parties support this. It is very much a uniparty when it comes to foreign policy. I'm old enough to remember when the Democratic Party had their historic landslide in 2006 in the midterms and then, of course, swept Obama into office and even better results in 2008, primarily off of being anti-war. That was their big thing is Bush and the Republicans are warmongers. We are anti-war. That argu- We talked about this off the air, that arguably that is what killed the right in the culture war is the right became seen as the side of war thanks to Bush and that allowed the left to monopolize the hippie, the really edgy, you know, for the younger kids, the popular stance of we're anti-war, we're anti-war. And yet now when you look at it, you know, again, Obama promised to end the war and everything, but he ended up giving us more war. He toppled Libya, went back into Iraq, gave us ISIS. Hillary was going to go into Syria. Like they really are more war hungry than the right ever has been. And yet they've managed to successfully gaslight everyone into thinking, oh, Republicans are the warmongers. Representative Michael Waltz, Republican of Florida, Florida, gave his rationale for towing the neocon line this way. He said, quote, I think if we don't support Ukraine, that sends a very clear message on top of Afghanistan and the debacle that was that withdrawal that the United States is no longer supporting its allies around the world. End quote. Ukraine isn't an ally. Ukraine has never been an ally. We do not have an alliance with Ukraine. Ukraine is not part of NATO. If Ukraine is swallowed up, the United States is not treaty bound to defend Ukraine this and this is I don't even know if Waltz again this is the thing Republicans they don't really think critical the Republican elected officials they don't really think critically about any of this they've swallowed the Kool Aid that the United States has a sacred duty to defend democracy and freedom throughout the world and that's it if there's a country that they're the elite claims is democratic they're like okay well let's let's defend them. If there's a country that says that if the democratic elite says that their freedom is under threat the Republicans are like okay well let's defend that country and. Again, Afghanistan, like you can – if you look at what he's saying, I think we, if we don't support them, that sends a very clear message on top of Afghanistan. This guy probably thinks that we should have stayed in Afghanistan. He's completely out of sync with 90 percent of Republican voters. 90 percent of Republican voters, which support Donald – supported Donald Trump, do not think that we should have stayed in Afghanistan. <laughs> and this is why it's so infuriating. When you're watching something like this happen, it just shows that the Republicans can rally to around one candidate that is for non-intervention. They can elect that candidate to the presidency. But when congressional elections come around, they have a binary choice. They can vote for the D or they can vote for the R. Every single R on the ballot is opposed to non-intervention. Every single R on the ballot is focused on gaining power, maintaining power, and just having the, having the position, and they will go along with whatever the Democratic Party and the neoliberal establishment want. This is really what, what it boils down to. It boils down to defeating neoliberalism. The MAGA wing of the Republican Party is not going to see serious success until they take on neoliberal foreign policy head on and they make this a litmus test. Like do you support 
expanding NATO, yes or no? If your answer is yes, we can't vote for you. They need to make that as much of a litmus test as they make, I don't know, like say abortion. Or taxes. Say taxes. Like if they care as much about protecting American interests and American lives and keeping America safe, then these Republicans would also oppose any expansion of NATO because expanding NATO antagonizes Russia. I mean let's be honest. America first Republicans used to support ending the UN. They used to support completely getting out of the UN. I mean, especially now that the Soviet Union is gone, getting out of the UN, getting out of NATO should be, shouldn't even be up for question. It's that would like, be yes, so of nice to get out of the There's, UN. Oh my God! We should not be a part of any organization that does not serve our national interest. But see, here's the difference: our elites and our government they don't believe in the nation state. They believe in the mandate of history. In other words, they believe that we are at a point in time in history where the United States is powerful enough. That we can supersede the nation state and the United States can spread liberal democracy, which the majority of Americans don't even agree with, by the way. Like most Americans don't agree with the liberal democracy promoted by our elites. But nevertheless, because they don't give a crap what Americans think about anything, they literally believe that we are at a messianic point in our history, in the world history, that America can take its liberal democracy and spread it to every single country on the face of the earth. This is the John McCain doctrine. This is the Bill Clinton doctrine. This is the Bush doctrine. This is with the entire neocon doctrine that both parties are marching in lockstep. And the only major figure in communications in politics right now that is screaming against this that actually has a megaphone is Tucker Carlson. Uh, you asked me the other day, can you name one good senator? Yep. I couldn't name a good senator. Rand Paul is the only senator yep. that actually pushes back against this stuff. The others – the thing is – He pushes back uh, not just on foreign policy but also on, on the deep state. You know, a, a friend of mine mentioned that of all the senators in either party, if there's one senator who absolutely as president would take a sledgehammer to the deep state, it would be Rand Paul. And nobody else, no exceptions. Now, other senators will make comments that throw a little bait out to voters, like we shouldn't be involved in foreign wars, we shouldn't be the world's police force. Those like the Josh Hawley's. They'll, yeah, they'll Tom throw, Cotton. Yeah, they'll throw words, they'll throw catchphrases out like that. But when an issue, when it, when the pedal meets the metal, and they're mm-hmm. faced with an issue like Ukraine, where Russia could take Ukraine if we don't provide Russia with guarantees that Ukraine will not join NATO, they don't. Then they just join the Democrats. They march lockstep in with the Democrats. All Republicans would have to do to save face to still be, you know, the the tough peace through strength Republicans that they want to be to try to emulate Ronald Reagan. All they would have to do is tell Joe Biden, tell Putin that we don't want Ukraine and NATO. That's all they got to do. Tell Putin we don't want Ukraine and NATO. They can remain a neutral country. We're not going to insist that they join NATO. We will not let them join NATO, and that's the end of it. Because the thing is, we created this crisis. Crimea would still belong to the Ukraine if the United States had not helped Ukraine overthrow its democratically elected government in 2014. Russia would not have 130,000 troops on its border right now if we did not insist that Ukraine can one day. So look, you want to end the crisis? Let's back off. Let's back off and start minding our own business and focus on the United States. I agree. I mean, even just out of principle, not even a matter of, you know, to avoid conflict, just we, that is the definition of America first. Focus on our issues here. Focus on the southern border. Focus on – you can focus on foreign policy, absolutely. Focus on trade deals. We can go to war with China economically. We can stop them from shutting down our factories and outselling our companies with their cheap slave labor and forcing American manufacturers out of work and at the same time hopefully crack down on them buying our politicians, among other things. But focus on what is in America's best interests. Crazy thought, I know.
that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. A little bit of breaking news, actually, just had to go ahead and let you guys know this. I just noticed this while we were recording. We have just been censored by big tech once again, my friends. YouTube has deleted our episode number 48, which was the episode on January 6th prisoners or or, uh, January 6th protesters out of prison who are now running for office, among other things. That episode has been struck due to violating community guidelines about misinformation about the 2020 election. Even though we didn't talk about that, they just love to go after us. So we have a strike now. So we will most likely be back to posting on YouTube soon enough. But for the time being, they're coming after us, our humble little channel even now. So once again, as always, be sure to follow all of our latest content where it can't be censored, our website, righttakepodcast.com. All the other platforms where we are available, yes, the handful of the, the big tech ones like YouTube, Google, Amazon, but also the alt tech platforms like Rumble, BitChute, Gab, and others, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And of course, if you are feeling so generous and want to help us out, get, help us get through the censorship and otherwise, as we continue to grow and rebrand and expand our channel, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.